Greetings to all my cool cats and cool kittens. They try to copy our style, but they stay frostbitten. From the broadcast to the podcast, it is your man DM Cool. And this is Cool Radio. What we doing? You can catch me on your TV, even on the radio. Pop up at our blog spot, and on my Uwego. We invading airwaves. Everywhere, everything airwaves. Hold up, why them haters mad? Oh, you didn't know? Your ass better call somebody! Yes, y'all, yes, y'all, tell a friend to tell a friend, because we are back on the pod, we are back online, it is your man DM Cool, and this is another edition of Cool Radio, and the cool is in full effect. We've got a lot to get to on today's episode, y'all, we do, we have plenty to get to. Uh, Let me give you guys the uh, quick itinerary of what is to be expected of this show. For the Trip Talk segment, we will break down Travis Scott. We will also be breaking down the Rap Album of the Year nominees category for the Grammys in February. Is it in February or is it in March? Early 2022. Let's just call it that. And I'll give you my take on who I feel should win that award versus who I will predict that will win that award. And, of course, we have Wankster of the Week. It's going to be a doozy. It's always a doozy, but... This one's going to be near and dear to my heart because of the way I was roasting it a couple of years ago when it first happened. But we'll get to that when we get to that. And then the mic check segment of the week will be Drake and Kanye reuniting for the Larry Hoover tribute concert or benefit concert, whatever it may be. Um, We're definitely going to get to that. And I have a lot, a lot to say about that. But before we do... You already know how I get when it comes to the opening of the show. I got some things to get off my chest. So on that note, I think it's time to let that ish breathe. Let this bitch breathe. Now, before I get started, I just want to say to everybody who's listening out there, happy holidays all right happy holidays some people have started their holiday uh breaks early some of them are getting to it either way um happy holidays to all of you no matter what religion you celebrate or the ones that you choose not to celebrate or if you're not a believer or anything like that if you just enjoy the holidays in general really then again i extend that same courtesy happy holidays to you all and i appreciate y'all for for listening in most definitely now let's get into what I want to get into. So to start things off with, with uh, let that ish breathe. I haven't gotten into my basketball bag in a minute. It's it's been a minute since I've really gotten into my basketball bag. So uh, I really want to discuss a few things um, basketball related, if y'all don't mind. All right, just because again, it's things that I get I get off of my chest. Um, no Raptors talk. Actually, we're not going to be talking about the Raptors. No, no, no. As much as I love the Raptors, we the North. We won't be talking about the Raptors today. No, no, no. I want to talk about two things, all right? Two entities. The Los Angeles Lakers and Zion Williamson and how it relates and correlates, rather, 
to the NBA mainstream media. So let's start off with the Lakers because y'all know my unbridled hatred for the Los Angeles Lakers as a franchise crew and 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 record label and what what is that thing that Tupac said? <laughs> He's like as a as a crew as a, as, a, as a crew gang and and MFN crew or so I don't know something like that. I'm butchering the line. Whatever, it's not important. Um, if you know, you know. Uh, <laughs> but no, no. Let me get into the Lakers real quick. So. Coming into the season, everybody was hyping up the Lakers as per the usual because they got certain names that people recognize within the basketball world. And they think that because they have all these big names that it's going to lead to an NBA championship, which we already know that that is not often the case. We know that this isn't always the case all the time. Sure, it's happened before, but it doesn't mean it's guaranteed, especially when you take into consideration that. The majority of these players on the team are over the age of 30. There's barely anyone who's under the age of 30. Even if you look at Anthony Davis, who's about 27 years old, he may as well be 30 plus because he's had so many injuries throughout his entire NBA career that he's never been reliable to call upon when you need him the most outside of the bubble season, which is when he really actually showed his legitimacy as one of the top players in the league. But anyways, I digress. In the offseason, they traded for Russell Westbrook, and they traded a lot of their supporting cast in order to get Russell Westbrook. And a lot of people were questioning the move because Russell Westbrook is not a good shooter at all. He's not a good mid-range shooter. He's not a good long-range shooter. And he's very prone to turning the ball over ad nauseum. And he has one play style and one play style only, and that's just running to the basket, dunking, and then beating his chest. Like, that that's all that he has in his bag. Yes, I understand that he averaged a triple-double in multiple seasons throughout, like, the last three or four years, give or take. And he got an MVP base off of that, and I respect him for it. But when the triple-doubles don't really add to winning, then it becomes empty stats. It becomes empty calories. So because of that, I can't really give him that many props or ratings in that regard. When Jason Kidd was flirting around with a triple-double back in his days as a member of the New Jersey Nets, it led to them winning. It led to them going to the to the NBA Finals two years in a row after being one of the most laughable teams in the entire league. So that shows for something. Whereas Russell Westbrook, you can't really say that those triple-doubles led to him improving the team or making those around him better. You, you just can't say that. I would love to say that, but the reality is he hasn't shown that. In fact, it's actually shown that players who used to play with him have actually gotten better. I've had more success throughout their careers as their careers have gone along. Kevin Durant won two championships with the Golden State Warriors. Serge Ibaka won a championship with the, with the Toronto Raptors. Uh, Victor Oladipo became an all-star. Uh, DeMontis Sabonis became an all-star. So on and so forth. And this is the crux of Russell Westbrook. But anyways... These are certain things that the mainstream media has chosen to ignore, especially when it comes to ESPN, because I don't know what kind of contract that ESPN has with the Los Angeles Lakers. I know that ESPN is based out in New York and in L.A. I don't know what kind of agreement that they have, but it's almost like they're afraid to speak bad or to at least give constructive criticism and feedback 
on the Los Angeles Lakers. Like, they'll celebrate them when they do good, but when they do bad, it's like, oh, well, it's the coach, and the coach doesn't know how to use his players. No, the, the, there's nothing wrong with the coach because you guys weren't saying this two seasons ago and literally a year ago when they won the NBA championship inside the bubble. You guys weren't saying that, but now you guys want to start throwing blame at the coach? No, how about we throw blame at the GM for putting this team together? This is not a well-constructed team. Like, I'm sorry, but a team... That's consisting of a 37-year-old LeBron James, an injury-prone Anthony Davis, a turnover-prone Russell Westbrook, a 37-year-old Carmelo Anthony, who still doesn't want to play defense even in his 19th season in the league. This is not a recipe for success. It just isn't. Like You can have all the big names that you want, but it doesn't mean that it's going to win you a championship or that it makes you deserving of a championship. And the problem that I've had with this Lakers franchise and the mentality around the Lakers, whether it's the players, former players, executives, the media personnel who, who, who cover them, and the fans to a certain extent, is the fact that there's a level of entitlement that comes with the Lakers. The fact that you're expected to win gold each and every year. And I keep telling people, and people, you know, will take my haterism into account, and I understand, but the reality of the situation is that when you look at other teams, whether it be the Toronto Raptors, whether it be the Miami Heat, whether it be the Denver Nuggets, they have a culture and they have a system and an identity, San Antonio Spurs especially, they have a system, a culture, and an identity. The Lakers' culture and identity is based around nostalgia based around the nostalgia of them winning championships in past years and past decades. That is their culture and identity. Do they have a play style? No, they absolutely do not have a play style, and that's the problem. And another problem that the Lakers have that a lot of these people are afraid to admit is the fact that whenever they do draft young talent, they don't cultivate and develop them. Because if they did cultivate and develop them, they would actually build a strong core of players that could actually lead them to a title for many years as opposed to the immediate right now. The Lakers as a franchise, all they ever care about is instant success, instant success and instant gratification. And it's kind of like it's almost comparable to today's social media generation where they want instant gratification and instant success. And that is the Lakers. Otherwise, you wouldn't you, you want to mortgage your future to, to trade for a guy like Russell Westbrook, who's 32, 33 years old. Like he's only going to go downhill from here. Because throughout the entirety of his career, all he's ever done is rely upon his athleticism. He's never really improved on a lot of aspects of his game that can make the entire team better. He hasn't done that. The proof is in the bag. He hasn't done that. And you look at the players that they've had in like the last two or three years. They've had guys like Brendan Ingram, who eventually became an all-star. They've had D'Angelo Russell, who eventually became an all-star. They had Julius Randle, sorry, Julius Randle, who not only became an all-star, but was named the NBA's most improved player. They had Kyle Kuzma, who is a good role player. They had um, Jordan Clarkson, who's become one of the best, one of the best six men in the league. They had Montrez Harrell, who is also one of the best six men in the league. Like, do you see where I'm going with this? They've had plenty of young talent that they all could have kept together. And that's not to say that they all would have blossomed into superstars or anything like that. But you can see and you can tell that they all had the talent to become 
a well, well-oiled and close-knit unit that could have been contending for years to come. As long as you pay them the money, of course, and as long as you get them the proper staff to develop their talents and to cultivate it. And of course, it's LA. They're going to invest in that money, but they'll only invest in it if it's a superstar player that they feel that they're entitled to because of their team history. I mean, you have broadcasters out here who are celebrating them getting wins off of the off of the Detroit Pistons and the Houston Rockets. Those are literally the two worst teams in the league, and they're celebrating and try and overemphasize the fact that they beat them in, in close nail biting games. If you are a team that is composed of LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Russell Westbrook, Carmelo Anthony, Dwight Howard. I don't know why I said his name like that, Dew White, not Dwight. <laughs> but nonetheless, if you have all those players on your team, then of course you're expected to win the games to those guys. So why celebrate it? No, it, You shouldn't even be having nail-biting games against those teams. But there are broadcasters in the mainstream of sports who are celebrating those wins. What are we talking about? You guys are supposed to trample them. So what do you want? Like blue ribbons of participation now? That's what we're doing? And despite all that, despite all the delusions of grandeur and and their overall record right now, which I think is at an even 500, some of these people still think that the Lakers can win it all. Forget making the finals or forget even, you know, making it to the playoffs or the play-in, but they think they can win it all. Like this isn't LeBron James from 10 years ago or even five years ago for that matter. Same can be said about Russ. Anthony Davis, he's never been a winner, in my opinion. Sorry to break it to you guys. And by the way, speaking of him, and I know I've spoken to him about him in, in past podcasts, but contrary to popular belief, he's not a top five player in the NBA. This idea of him being a top five player just because he's 6'10 and has the ability to shoot from the perimeter and mid-range and can cover all five positions. Like, honestly, stop your wet dream of Anthony Davis. It's not happening anymore. Giannis is a better player than Anthony Davis. And I think... More people in the media should be responsible enough to admit that. We can see it for our own eyes. Look at the resume that Giannis has constructed versus the resume that Anthony Davis has constructed. Anthony Davis's career stats and the milestones and achievements are nothing more than empty calories because him being all NBA, him leading the league and rebounding or whatever the case may be at one point in his career, it, may, it means nothing if you're not winning. He's barely even been to the playoffs. But yet we want yet these media people are begging us to believe that he's a top five player in the in the NBA. No, it's a fallacy. The idea of him is top five because of what he can do or what he is perceived to, to to be able to do. And even his shooting has become a little bit overrated because he's only averaging about 30 percent from three point range, which is below average. So what are we really talking about? Giannis is a far superior player, far superior. I'm not even saying better superior player than Anthony Davis man won MVP and defensive player of the year in the same season and some of these media personalities will have you believing or trying to believe that that Chris Middleton is better than him or that or that Giannis is better suited as a Robin as opposed to a Batman no Anthony Davis is friggin Robin and he's not even the cool Robin like like Dick Grayson or anything like that nah he, he he's friggin you see, he's, he's Jason Todd, all right? He's Jason Todd, somebody who got killed as a Robin, couldn't make it, couldn't even cut it as a Robin. And so he had to turn into Red Hood. That's my nerd bag in me speaking right now. But anyways, all I say is this, because I really want to get into the, to the Zion stuff real quick. All I'm going to say is this. 
all this pandering and all this, you know, uh, pole jockeying and coattail riding that the mainstream media does in order to, you know, lift the Lakers and to make them seem like they're like America's team when it comes to basketball. I'm sorry, but it's not the case. I get it. You're in sunny, bright L.A., palm trees and Rodeo Drive and pumpkin spice lattes and and celebrities on every other street corner and all this other shit. But at the end of the day, the Lakers are just a bum-ass team. They're a bum-ass middling average team at best. It's time you people start accepting that. I don't know why people are so desperate to think that the Lakers are bigger than what they are. They, they just aren't. They just aren't. Maybe if they actually built themselves into an actual team that actually has a culture and identity that's revolved around cultivating talent and grooming them to be you know, the next Golden State Warriors to be the next San Antonio Spurs, then maybe they would get more respect around the league. But no, you guys keep on, you know, pole jocking these people into thinking that they are what that they, that they're bigger than what they are when the reality is they're not. So take off your, your, your purple and, and, and yellow sunglasses and get real. Cause the Lakers aren't who you think they are. You see the Lakers on TV. You see them being lackluster and average at best. And the reality is, they are who they are. And that's an average team with a bunch of over-the-hill stars who will never be back to their prime selves. That's it. Full stop. End of story. Now, let me get to Zion Williamson real quick. All right? I want to get to Zion. Now, I don't want to knock on this kid too harshly, but it has to be said that he's probably one of the most overrated players in the league. And I don't put... That blame on him specifically. There are a few things I wanted to take accountability for, but that's not one of them. I put that on the NBA media once again. Because the NBA media will have you believing that this is the superstar of the future. That this is going to be the new face of the NBA. And the reality is he's not. And I don't think he ever will be. He's just not ready for it. He just isn't. Like, I get the fact that he was drafted number one in overall and stuff like that. I get it. Shit like that happens. But when you look at this guy, you know, you could go back to his high school, his high school days when he was on Ball is Life, mixtapes and stuff like that. But even when you go into college, we're talking about a man who was six foot seven, who was like, what, 280 pounds of, of just mass muscle. And he plays a very explosive style of basketball, running gun, jumping out of the building. Like his whole style is based on athleticism. And when you have a frame that is about 280 pounds, and you're jumping all over the damn place. Your body will not sustain the pressure of that, the literal physical pressure of that. That will deteriorate your body. We've seen that with players who have weighed less. Look at Derrick Rose and how many knee injuries that he had during the prime of his career. And his prime got cut short because of that. Look at Tracy McGrady and the amount of back spasms that he had. Look at uh, uh, Penny Hardaway. Look at Vince Carter in the in the in the early goings with the Raptors when he had all those injuries with his knee. Those guys were probably like I mean Derrick Rose was maybe like two hundred pounds at most. I think he was like one ninety, like a cool one ninety, and he was about six foot two, which is the the proper height and the proper weight. Or sorry, the proper weight to be at that height. And he just couldn't escape from those injuries. Now, part of it had to do with the fact of like the way he landed and what have you that, that put a lot of pressure on his knees. But nonetheless, a style that's re- that's relied upon based on athleticism will not give you a long-lasting career, which is why LeBron James 
basically, you know, uh, t- uh, um, tailored his game to more of a jump shooting game as the years went on, which is what you're supposed to do. And I give him credit for that. But when you have when you have someone like Giannis who is that big already at that height, he's got to trim down the weight, man. He's got to trim even when he was at like physical peak where he looked like 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 a like a freaking African god or something like that. He it, it was still a bit too big for his play style. Now, if he was more of some someone who just banged in the post for the most part and just kind of kept his feet on the ground, then I'd say okay. He has a future in this league. If he had that style mixed with like an outside jumper, then then I'd be, I'd be like, okay, cool. Like he could probably have some sustainability in this league. But all I've seen from Giannis, or sorry, not Giannis, all I've seen from Zion is him just uh, 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 running like fast fast breaks, giving goes, transitions, all that stuff, jumping out of the building. It's not sustainable, and we're seeing that right now. And yet the league always doing like some sort of 24-hour watchdog service on on Giannis to see where he's at with his injury and his recovery time. Like the man had a broken foot and you, and you wonder why. Even He already had an injury history when he was in college. Like y'all remember the injury that he had when he busted, he literally busted his foot through the sneaker. Like what are we talking about? His style of basketball at his current body weight and physique is not sustainable. I remember when they were saying how this guy should be the rookie of the year over John Morant when he only played about 30 games. What the hell are we talking about? John Morant played all 82 games and led the Grizzlies to like a half game within the playoffs. That team was supposed to be tanking. They were supposed to be a lottery team, but he kept them afloat. John Morant was the real rookie of the year, and yet the media was really trying to push this narrative that it was going to be a neck-and-neck race between him and Zion when it wasn't even close. If that's the case, Joel Embiid would have been the rookie of the year over, over what's my man's name from, from Indiana Pacers? Um, holy shit, I, I had his name in my... Malcolm Brogdon. Malcolm, Bro, Malcolm Brogdon was a clear-cut rookie of the year. Joel only played about 30 games. And that was his third season, but technically the first one that he's played since being in the league because of the injuries, once again. Honestly, the the media tries too hard, and and they're so begged to make certain players stand out and to make other players not stand out. Here's another example. Giannis, and I'm going back to Giannis again, but Giannis was heavily critiqued and criticized because of the fact that his game was very similar in the sense where it's running gun and what have you. But instead of being celebrated for it, he was critiqued for it because a lot of players and media accuse him of not having a quote unquote bag. He doesn't have the step back jumper. He doesn't have a crossover. He doesn't have a jumper at all. He sucks at free throws. Da, 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 da. Yet Zion is literally in that same position where he doesn't have the step back jumper. He doesn't really have a jumper. All he does is rely on his in- interior scoring and, and just rushing towards the paint. But he gets celebrated for it. In fact, they are pulling out stats where he's averaging the highest field goal percentage within the paint in the last 30 years. I guarantee Giannis was doing a similar thing, but they were lambasting him for it to the point where they're saying how he's not a good fit to be a leader of a team. But we're celebrating, but we're celebrating Zion for it. Pardon me if I don't feel as though there's some sort of xenophobia that's happening when it comes to Giannis because of the fact that he's not an American-born player who does not play the American style of basketball. 
But y'all got me all the way effed up. If you're trying to tell me that there isn't a blatant level of hypocrisy that comes between the, the judging of Giannis's game, for example, versus Zion's game, which is a very similar game when, when you're just looking at the bare bones of it in terms of relying upon the athleticism and what have you. And on top of all that, this is what I'm going to blame Zion for. You know you're injured. Pardon me. You know you're injured. And you know that your body weight is an issue already as it is. And yet, what do you do? You basically ignore whatever dietary options are being presented in front of you as far as keeping the weight off. And you're adding more weight. In fact, it's reported now that Zion Williams is 330 pounds as a six foot seven wing player. He is 330 freaking pounds. That's a lot. That is a friggin lot. You're going to have to carry that weight on some cowboy bebop shit. That is a lot of weight to carry and to try and manage. Even if he was like a linebacker in the NFL, that's still pretty heavy. But you're in basketball, my friend. You, you have to have a slim and slender physique in order to survive in this league. And the fact that you weigh the size of like of a fucking sumo wrestler at this point, bro, what are you doing? If anything, and I know because your foot is injured, you can't do like a whole lot of drills and practices and what have you. But the idea is to eat healthy so that you can keep the weight off. But all you're doing is probably eating Popeye's chicken biscuits with some crawfish on the side. And this is the dude that the NBA wants us to believe in. Nah, man, I'm sorry. I don't I, I refuse to believe in the hype any longer. This is this has gone on for far too long. I feel like at this point, this is now a practical joke. And that we're all in on it. So no diss to the kid. Like, I, like I'm sure he's a good guy. Um, and, and I would like for him to have a, a good career ahead of him. But he's not the face of the league. And it doesn't seem like he's taking his rehab seriously if he's binging on an unhealthy diet. That's not going to get him anywhere except out of the league. I don't know if he's just trying to get his money and be out. I know playing in New Orleans is not the sexiest market or opportunity, but at the end of the day, when you are a rookie in the NBA, you cannot pick and choose. There's only so many players that are able to play basketball professionally at the highest level. So the fact that you're even drafted, some people take it as, as a given, but you should take it as a blessing, which is why you have somebody, again, I'm going to say it, I don't give a shit, but which is why you have somebody like Giannis who worked his ass off and made his strengths or sorry made his weaknesses into his growing strengths and he is like the epitome and like the the textbook definition of what hard work looks like when you overcome talent zion has all the talent in the world but he's not willing to put in the work for it same thing with anthony davis so all this talk about him being the face of the league in the words of jay-z we don't believe you you need more people but hey, I could be looking at it completely wrong. So for all the hoop heads listening and for all the casuals who are listening as well, who just wanted to hear me rant, what do y'all think about my analysis on the kid? What do you think of my analysis on the Lakers? Either way, hit me up on all my socials and feel free to have a conversation with me on it because I would love to hear your thoughts, views, and opinions on the matter. All right, let's get into mic check. 
So early in the show, I opened up by saying that Drake and Kanye would be the mic check segment focus. So let's get into them, all right? The main reason why they're the focus is because they participated in the Larry Hoover Benefit concert, all right? Now, for those of you who are not familiar with who Larry Larry Hoover is, he is a gangster, all right? He is a gangster who was known for being one of the founders of a mafia entitled uh, BMF or Black Mafia Family. I think that's the acronym for it. If it's not, please correct me on it. I'm not about that life, so it is what it is. And for those of you who are rap fans, you've probably heard that name mentioned time and time out, probably most notably on the record BMF, which is from Rick Ross featuring Styles P, where he says, I think I'm Big Meech, huh? Lara Hoover, huh? Whip and work, huh? Hallelujah. Like, that's that's the record, right? I'm not going to lie. It's a catchy-ass record. I, that's one of... I'll be honest. I'm not a huge Ross fan, but when I heard that record, I was like, okay, this bangs. This bangs, all right? <laughs> and I believe there's also a BMF series on Stars right now, which is executive produced by 50 Cent. So if you want to know more info about Larry Hoover, then I'm sure that's one of the sources that you can go to as well. But anyways, let's continue on. So... They performed at the Larry Hoover Benefit concert uh, very recently over the past weekend. I think they did so on it was either a Thursday or a Friday. I can't remember which 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 one it was, but they performed that and the concert was also broadcasted throughout um, on Amazon Prime if you had a Prime subscription. And so before the Benefit concert took place, they were seen taking a photo together maybe a week prior, two weeks prior at most. And. Within the photo uh, was also an individual by the name of Jay Prince, who's the founder of Rap A Lot Records, which is one of the first independent rap labels ever and the first one to come out of the South. And so Jazz or Jay Prince, uh, in case if the name rings a bell beyond the, the description that I just gave, he's also the person who told Drake to basically cease and desist from continuing his rap feud with Pusha T. And basically him saying that it would... It wouldn't benefit Drake in the long run. So Drake listened to his OG, so to speak, and decided not to continue on with the diss tracks. So there's that. Now, let me give you guys a timeline of the feud between Drake and Kanye West. And I'm going to give you my thoughts on the feud as a whole, as well as their current uh, truce, as as it appears to be, and why I feel like it's problematic. So let's get into it. So as you all know, Drake blew up on the scene in 2009, like on on like an international level, basically, like outside of Canada and into the U.S. and into the mainstream U.S. zeitgeist uh, with his now classic mixtape. It's it's definitely classic. No one can tell me otherwise. Classic mixtape known as So Far Gone. And one of the records that was that blew that helped blow up the mixtape into the success that it was was the record best I ever had. Best I ever had was number two uh, on the Billboard Billboard Hot 100, and it was the highest charted uh, record from an unsigned artist. Now, we all know that he was technically unsigned at the time, but he was very heavily aligned with uh, Lil Wayne and, and uh, Young Money. And Lil Wayne at the time was in the prime of his uh, career popularity-wise. Um, I think by that time, he had already come out with, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, the Carter Three, and I just won a Grammy for Best Rap Album. Like he was on fire. Like the Young Money brand was on fire, and obviously he used his clout to push Drake and to push Nicki Minaj. And if there's one thing, 
you know, this is a bit of a side note over here, but there's one thing I will give Lil Wayne credit for. I know some people are very iffy about his lyrics and, and the way he rhymes. It's, it's very polarizing, I find. But if there's one thing I will give Lil Wayne credit for is his ability to take a step back out of the spotlight and create superstars out of other rappers. I can't say the same for other rappers in the past. Like, Jay is probably the only person I can think of when it came to giving the spotlight to somebody else, like a Kanye West, for example, while he was in his prime. And then he gave the spotlight to other guys like Beanie and Memphleek, whatever. They they ran with it for a minute, but they could never get out of that box that they were in. Kanye was the only one. Uh, but beyond that, there are other rappers who are just like more about themselves and they, and they would give their underlings a little bit of shine here and there. But it never surmounted into that superstar status that drake and nikki were able to accomplish and achieve so i would give Lil wayne all the credit in the world for that because he was somebody who didn't mind giving somebody their flowers when when they're well needed so i give props to him on that anyways let me continue on i digress a lot i'm sorry <laughs> but anyways they blew up or sorry drake blew up with uh, so far gone and um best i ever had was a runaway hit number two overall on the charts and so a lot of people were saying oh there should be a video for it. there should be a video so word came out that there would be a video and the video was directed by none other than kanye west so we're thinking oh wow kanye west because if there's one thing about kanye that i'll always give him credit for is that it's his eye for music videos he has an eye for music videos that is one of the best that I've ever seen in my personal opinion. Like the vision that he has for music videos and how he wants it to be executed and the creativity that he puts into them. Some of the some of the best work I've seen in a long time. Now, as far as his latest music videos, I can't really speak on them because I haven't seen a lot of his latest latest, latest music videos just because I'm not about that Kanye brand anymore. I'm kind of off of that train or been off of that train, I should say. But nonetheless, at the time, his eye for music videos was still top notch. So everyone was thinking, oh, man, the visuals are going to be amazing. So we get to the video. And to this day, and I haven't seen the video in a long time and I don't want to. But to this day, I can imagine that it's still one of the most poorly directed and laughable music videos of all time. It looked like a parody video. It's even to the point where. I think somebody like Weird Al Yankovic wouldn't even touch that video to do a parody of it for himself. Because he would look at that and be like, ooh, yeah, nah, even I'm not touching this. Sorry, man. No, no freaking way. He wouldn't even touch this. And I don't even blame him for that. It was a laughable music video. All it was was a bunch of big titty girls in sweaty spandex suits. That's all it was. And they're just jumping around. They're playing a basketball game against a team of women who could actually hoop. And you had people, like, you know, you had your famous people sitting in the bleachers. Like, I think you had Amber Rose sitting in the bleachers for the music video. Everyone just trying to get there, their little cameo spot, because they know Drake is a hot one now, and they want to rub off of him, essentially. But anyways, that that was a disgu- disgusting video, not, not because of the women's scanty club, but just of how poorly executed it was. And it was just so sad. And, like... A music video will sometimes give a song more life and more definition and more feeling, but that was the exact opposite. It, if anything, it, it kind of took away the the moment, the momentum and the steam that the music video or that the song once had. So we're like, "Whoa, Kanye! Like, what are you doing? Like, are you trying to sabotage this man's career? Like, what are you doing? Like, this is a this is a shit music video. What, what the hell are you doing?" So there was that, and then fast forward, Jay Z puts out. 
uh, his album, his latest album at the time, The Blueprint 3. And it featured a lot of uh, a lot of artists, a lot of current artists and a lot of up and coming artists. So you had Rihanna on there. You had uh, Young Jeezy on there. You had J. Cole on there. You had Kid Cudi on there. And then, of course, you had Drake on there. And Drake was on a record called Off That, which was produced by Timbaland. Now, the word is that this was supposed to be the first single off of the album. Now, technically, the first single off of the album was Death of Autotune, but that came out months and months in advance. That came out, I think, spring of that year. And Blueprint 3 didn't come out until, I want to say, November of 2009. It came out around that time. And the whole idea was Drake was supposed to, or sorry, um, that that record was supposed to be the first one out because Drake, again, his momentum was like on, it was in fuego at the time. And Jay has a knack for putting on for new artists as well. So he kind of wanted to do that for Drake because he saw Drake as the future of rap and rightfully so. But then the word is Kanye got in his ear and said, no, that shouldn't be the first single. That shouldn't be a single at all. Um, it should be it should be run this town with me, you and Rihanna in it. That's the word. And so what ended up happening was run this town featuring Kanye and Rihanna produced by Kanye ended up being the first official single from that album. Surprised? I think not. All right. So let's continue to keep moving then. All right. 2011. By this time, Drake is a well-known commodity and superstar in the world of rap. He has already put out So Far Gone, the mixtape. He put out his debut album, um, uh, Thank Me Later, which, ironically enough, Kanye produced two records off of that album. And then we also have his second album, which was entitled uh, Take Care. All right, so Take Care was on there. And the funny thing is, you know, while he's celebrating his superstardom and Lil Wayne is still, you know, somewhere close to peak popularity, um, because we had heard Drake and Lil Wayne on so many records together, a lot of people were saying, oh, we should get like a double album or like a dual album with, with Drake and Kanye or sorry, no, uh, Drake and Lil Wayne. Some people were even saying how there should be one with Drake and Rick Ross and even Drake and Rick Ross were hinting to it, uh, with YOLO, right? You only live once. And that's been like a running theme for like the last decade now, fast forward. So you have that going on. So with all these murmurs and rumors and even Drake and Lil Wayne themselves hinting at a potential du- um, uh, dual album, what does Kanye do? Kanye himself announces a dual album between him and Jay-Z called Watch the Throne, which is an obvious dig at Drake and Lil Wayne because Drake or sorry for Lil Wayne. Rather, he has been cited as being the best rapper alive since the best rapper retired, right? That's a proclamation that he made, but but eventually a lot of people start following onto that mantra. It's like, yeah, Lil Wayne is the best rapper alive. And then that's for Drake. He's the young lion coming out. He's the one who's going to, you know, ascend to the throne, so to speak, um, once Lil Wayne decides to, you know, hang it up or, you know, take a hiatus, whatever the case may be. And he's like the hottest young talent in rap at the time. So, of course, Jay and Kanye are going to do a collaborative album together and they're going to call it watch the throne, you know, citing that they themselves are the Kings of rap. So they basically stole the idea <laughs> of doing a, a, a dual album. Now, obviously they're not the first ones to, to contemplate that, but I'm just saying like at that time that they're going to do it, Drake and Kanye, or sorry, um, uh, Jay and Kanye said, no, we're going to do it. And they actually did in fact do it. And I was shocked that they actually did it because when you hear about, you know, 
dual albums or super group albums, they almost never happen. They almost, the only other time apart from that that's actually happened was The Firm, and that was back in 97 with Nas, Foxy Brown, and AZ. That was actually the first time it did happen, in fact. But since then, we haven't really seen it. And, you know, there, there have been some underground groups like Run the Jewels and stuff like that, but we're talking like on a mainstream level here, on a mainstream level. And that was the first time that I've seen that happen since The Firm. But anyways, let's keep it going. So Drake feels slighted by this, and he goes on radio and saying, you know, that was supposed to be our idea, and they stole that. And then he even took a shot at them on the record I'm On One, which came out later that year in 2011, where he says, um, I'm just hearing that the throne is for the taking. Watch me take it. So that's obviously a, a direct dig at Jay and Kanye. So that you have that as well. Okay. And so after that, I would say things between uh Drake and and Kanye were relatively quiet because since then you didn't really hear a lot about you know their rumored beef or anything like that in the later albums to, to follow. So you didn't really hear a whole lot on Nothing Was the Same. Maybe a few subliminal jabs, but nothing to um, really you know pond rap because around that time that's when there was a rumored beef between him and Kendrick Lamar so that, that kind of took that steam away so you had that you had the if you're reading this is too late project you had views um you had uh the playlist album uh, what more life i believe it was called and so yeah it was pretty quiet for a few years and then there was even times where they went on stage together and you know they bigged each other up and stuff like that so we were thinking okay that's the end of it but then fast forward to 2018 and this is where things really start percolating here fast forward to 2018 kanye is getting ready for a rollout of epic proportions right in the summer of that year he was getting to roll out his album his his collaborative album with kate cuddy um pusha t's album tiana taylor's album Nas's album which we'll never speak of again and that was kanye he ruined that album by the way um and i think there may have been a few more, but they're not coming to memory right now. But basically, he was getting for a rollout that was so big that he actually wanted to make people forget about the fact that Drake himself was putting out an album out that year as well, which would be entitled Scorpion, the double disc album. And leading up to the album, you know, Drake was working on Kanye's album. He was doing some writing for Kanye. And as an aside, I just find it funny that people will accuse Drake of having ghostwriters when Drake has written for damn near everyone in the industry. But we'll leave that alone because people don't want to hear that shit. Anyways, Drake was, you know, writing for Kanye uh, for his album. And Drake was sharing some stories about who we now know as the, the mother of his child and talking about the fact that he has a child and how they're going through so many issues right now and how he's planning on using his new deal with Adidas uh, to roll out a line that's dedicated to his son. And that's going to be him letting the world know that he now has a son and that this rollout is basically going to be his inheritance and stuff like that. So he told all that information to Kanye and Kanye being, you know, the bitter jealous individual that he is, leaks all this information to Pusha T so that Pusha can use it for ammo, you know, against Kanye because Kanye, or sorry, not Kanye, because Pusha and Drake have had an issue uh, with one another going back to, I think, 2012 or something like that, mainly because Pusha had an issue with Lil Wayne and Drake was obviously sticking up for him. So there's that. 
And so what we get was a verse on a record called Daytona where he's going at Drake. So Drake is not one to be afraid of battle rap. He, he welcomes it, in fact. So literally the next day, 24 hours later, Drake puts out a record called Duppy Freestyle. And so throughout the majority of that record, he's basically calling out Kanye West for his treachery and calling him out for the fact that he basically turns on people for his own gain and for his own benefit, right? We, we, we've heard the record. If you haven't, check out the record. It's probably on YouTube. Could be even on like Apple Music or something like that. Who knows? Anyways, he addresses primarily Kanye on that record. Then has a slick line for, for Pusha T. Pusha T claps back with uh, the story of Adidon, which is probably one of the most disrespectful diss tracks I've ever heard in my life. Um, and then it's so disrespectful to the point where Drake wants to come back at him. But then that's when Jazz Prince comes or Jay Prince comes in and says, no, don't do it. Cease and insist. Fall back. Stand down. And he doesn't say anything after that. But then I believe uh, Scorpion comes out very shortly after. And you can tell that half of that album is addressing Kanye and Pusha T, but not in that scathing way that we were looking for. It was more subliminals here and there. Drake even alluding to a possible rumor that him and Kim Kardashian had an affair with one another. Um, People even uh, alluding to the possibility that uh that record uh what's that record called the one where he's like kiki do you love me i can't remember the name of the record but they're basically implying that kiki is short for kim and even even uh, kanye himself went on an instagram live video talking about how drake should have made that record or should have made that person named kiki because he's implying that he slept with kim and stuff like that so you have that so this has been happening for years, all right? This has been happening for years. And so going back to this whole Larry Hoover benefit concert, I just find it, me personally, I find it upsetting that Drake is willing to do work and to have a truce with somebody who openly told on him, basically exp- helping expose to the world that you slept with a former porn star you had a baby by that former porn star you chose not to reveal that information about your baby because you know you wanted to hide the world from your kid as you so eloquently put and then on top of that you 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 tell this information to one of your most heated rivals in the entire rap industry that's some treacherous shit right there so with all that being said you still chose to broker a truce with, with with Kanye, and now you're all up on stage, all huggy huggy together and stuff like that. Listen, I'm not saying that people can change or that people can end their their feuds, what have you. I mean, we saw that with Jay Z and Nas, but the constant back and forth. It's like, oh, we're friends again. Oh, now we're enemies. Now we're friends again. Now we're enemies. It's too much. And the lines that this guy was willing to cross in doing so in the process. I'm sorry, but there are just certain things that nobody should be given the benefit of the doubt to, to come back from. And you got to have a, a, some sort of moral compass about yourself to tell somebody, no, I don't mess with you anymore because you said some, some slanderous shit. I just do, I don't want to mess with people like that. And so for Drake to just be like, yeah, whatever, it's cool. You know, after, you know, hearing him on records talk about loyalty and 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 being down for your day ones and all that stuff like you again, you literally opened up to a guy who told who who spread information about not only your your family as far as like your the the child or the, the mother of your child and all that stuff. But you told him the information about your best friend, Noah Shabib, a.k.a. 40, who is suffering from M.S., 
and Pusha T use that in a lyric to defame you. You told him that in, in, in concert so that he could keep it to himself. He told you that as a friend. And then you go off and you tell that to Pusha so that he could use it as ammo against you. Nah, man, I'm sorry. But that, that, that's literally a matter of life and death. And I, I just don't see how anyone can find it in their heart to forgive someone who was able to use that as a moment of leverage. So when I see their relationship, it just it, it makes me double down on the fact because I've said this in the, in the past before, but it makes me double down on the fact that I believe that the rap industry specifically is a lot like world wrestling entertainment, WWE. It's pro wrestling. You have your your you have your heels, which are the bad guys, and you have your baby faces, which are the good guys. And it's a it's a constant back and forth between the heels and the baby faces all the time. And you have all these storylines and everything that are juicy and entertaining that make people want to get into them and, and have discussions about them, which is what I'm doing right now, ironically enough. And so that people can pontificate upon them and have it be like, you know, a back and forth in high school. Drake is too old at this point to to be to be caught in this in this kind of mix up. He's too old at this point. He's he he he's too well established as an, as an entertainer and as like a public figure as a whole to be entertaining this drama. It, I'm sorry, but it's too much. And I know Drake kind of entertains the drama in in his music and what have you. But like when it comes to uh, levels of this personal magnitude, it, enough is enough at, at some point, or it has to be. I would imagine it, it's too much. And then you know to add insult to injury. They came together and joined forces so that they could celebrate a gangster, a gangster who was notoriously known for either killing people himself in cold blood or for commanding his goon squad to do it for him, pushing all sorts of narcotics and drugs in in, in downtrodden communities. And while I do understand that everyone has a choice to either do the drug or or to not do the drug, the fact that you're supplying it to people who look like you, it, it kind of makes you sick to my stomach. And, and, and they're having a benefit concert in his name. Now, I don't know if like he is due for parole or he or he's eligible for release. And they're using this as a way to promote that fact and that they they want to urge people to, to get him out of jail. But the fact of the matter is he was put in jail for a reason. Why not keep him there? But no, this goes back to hip-hop or some aspects of hip-hop wanting to celebrate the gangster lifestyle, the thug mentality and all that shit. And it also goes back to, you know, the celebration of the over-exaggerated black stereotypes, which is like hyper-masculinity and hyper-sexuality and all that shit, which doesn't define all black men. And li- listen, I'm not trying to go on the soapbox and try and be, you know, Bill Cosby, pull up your pants and everything like that, but... If you're willing to come together for a known gangster who was notorious for nefarious activity in Larry Hoover, then why not come together for something a, a lot more meaningful than that? You've shown that you have the power to do so. So why not do that? Why are we coming in together for, for a retired gangster? Why is this still a thing? And the irony behind that is the fact that it's Kanye and, and Drake. They are the two least gangsters in rap history if we're talking from a popularity standpoint. Yes, they affiliate with people who are affiliated with gangsters, so on and so forth. But 
and the whole crux of it in, in, in the grand scheme of things, one of the reasons why they were so successful and why they stood out was because of the fact that they did not carry the gangster persona and the gangster mentality. That is one of the reasons why a lot of people swooned over them, swooned over them, and why they were be, that why they were able to become such mainstream fixtures. Now, if this was a Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre doing this, I wouldn't be surprised. Hell, if this was Kendrick Lamar, I wouldn't be surprised. But we're talking about Kanye and Drake, the two most non-gangster rappers ever in hip hop from a mainstream standpoint, and they're ironically coming together for the f- support and benefit of a retired gangster. What the fuck are we doing, people? So, in conclusion to the segment, anything that has to do with Drake and Kanye, I just don't care anymore. I just don't care because Drake has shown me, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm a fan of Drake, but Drake has shown me at this point where if you're willing to break bread with a man who basically dissed your baby mom's who exposed the fact that you have a son and like ruined your Adidas campaign to the point where you terminated your, your dealings with them and went back to Nike. And the fact that he was able to, to spill tea about your best friend who was basically according to push the tea on his deathbed and use that as ammo for our rap freestyle battle. Then I don't know what to tell you at this point. You're your own man. You're your own individual. You sign your own checks so if you want Kanye to continue to be your best friend and this has anything to do with your aspirations of wanting to meet Kanye when you were a young kid, then that's on you, bro. That that's that's on you. I I can't tell you right for rock at this point, man. Like there are dudes out here who will be wiping out strippers and they just want to do it because they want the clout and they want the ratings and the validation for it. There are women out here who want to be dating gangsters because they they pay all their bills and their mortgages and shit like that. And they love that image and they're grown ass women. I can't tell them not to do those things. You can you can exclaim it from the top of your lungs. But at the end of the day, they're going to do what they want to do because it's their life. So I say, hey, you have agency. You take control of it. If that's what you want to do, cool. But when shit hits the fan, don't be complaining about the smell. That's all I got. But hey, am I wrong in this? Am I going too hard at the boys? What am I doing? You guys let me know as you always do. And feel free because I would love to hear your take on the matter as a stance. Okay. Now, let's get to Trip Talk, all right? Three of the hottest topics that took place in hip-hop. And with that said, let's get to it. So Travis Scott was recently on the air uh, on The Breakfast Club, Power 105.1, and this was the first interview that he's had um, since the whole World catastrophe, essentially. So he was on the air talking about it, and a lot of people were, were critiquing the answers that he was giving uh, on that pod with regard, or not that pod, but on the uh radio show segment with regards to the entire incident and they're basically critiquing a lot of the things that he was saying or not even saying so basically one of the main things that people were upset about was that he was you know contradicting a lot of the statements that he was making and one of them referred to the ambulance going through the crowd so he would say stuff like, you know, he didn't know that the blue and red meant ambulance. And then he said, when I saw the ambulance in the crowd, I asked for help right away. So a lot of people are looking at statements like that and saying how disingenuous he was being about the situation. And then when he was asked about when Live Nation told him to stop performing right after Drake, since there was a mass casualty, 
And then he said yes, but proceeded to play one more solo song right after Drake. So when you hear statements like that, you know, it, it kind of lets you know that, you know, he was kind of being irresponsible on his part when it, when it came to the entire fiasco that was. Now, do I feel that he should be blamed for the entire thing? No. Why? Because even though his name is on the marquee, he's not the one who put the concert together. It was Live Nation. And I think I said on the last pod that I recorded and that I dropped that Live Nation should be the one bearing the blunt, the bearing the brunt of the blame and for anyone who said it was a good idea for travis scott to speak on it whether it's his pr team management team whatever you want to say shame on them because they know they should already know like when it comes to rappers specifically rappers are not the best public speakers rappers need pr teams to speak for them because they don't know how to articulate their points properly whether it's travis scott whether it's um, what's that kid's name? Uh, that kid from Miami with the weird hair. I can't remember that kid's name. But whether it's that kid, his name just came to my mind as well. But whether it's him, uh, whether it's it, hell, even if it's Kid Cudi for for that matter, like a lot of these rappers are not good at public speak. Kodak Black, thank you. That's the kid I was thinking about. Kodak Black. A lot of these kids are not good at public speaking. They are so inarticulate, and I think it's because of the fact that they spend time around people who are also inarticulate as well, and, and just within their own social crowds. Now, I would love if like someone like Drake w- w- would speak publicly about uh, just about anything in general, really, to be honest, because Drake is someone who's very well-spoken. He knows how to articulate his points. I would say the same about J. Cole. I would say the same about Kendrick Lamar. I would say the same about Big Crit. I would say the same about Wale, even though he has massive outbursts, but he knows how to articulate himself. He just chooses when not to. Travis Scott is not one of those people. Like, this is a guy who talks about, you know, coding and, and, and getting high on, on Adderall and shit like that. Like, he's not the kind of guy that I would want speaking publicly on anything. I just want him to entertain. That's it. That's it. Sounds kind of fucked up to say, but that's the reality of the situation. So Travis Scott speaking on the matter didn't really help. I think if anything, it made it worse. But nonetheless, I don't think that he should bear the entire brunt of the blame when it comes to that incident. Again, that right is reserved for Live Nation because, again, like I said before, dating back to 2006, they are responsible for hundreds i'm talking about literal hundreds of deaths at concerts and injuries as well they have lawsuits going back to 2006 with regards to that so my question is why is live nation being the ones um to put these organ to put these festivals together when they have so many liabilities at hand with regards to how they structure things we should be holding them accountable more than anyone else that has anything to do with this. I mean, even Drake is being sued for this. And Drake Drake performed one or two songs at that festival, and that was it. But again, because Drake is a big name and he's one person, it's a lot easier to aim blame at, at one person as opposed to an entire conglomerate of people. And to me, it's just lazy. It's lazy, all right? If you're really serious about pinning blame on somebody and you want those people to be held accountable for it, then you would actually be going at Live Nation because they are the ones who put it all together. And as a result of it, you know, um, more recently, Travis Scott has uh, has lost some endorsements. So he was actually taken off of the uh, performance bill 
for Coachella, which is arguably the biggest festival in all of music as it currently stands today. So you have that, and he also had a sponsorship with uh, Cacti Seltzer, and that deal has been put on hold indefinitely. So maybe they will go back to him you know, in a few months from now once everything blows over, but the fact that they're not proceeding with any further movements just lets you know that this whole fiasco has a lot of investors scared and that they don't want any negative press to, to fall back down on them because of, you know, quote-unquote cancel culture. So... It's hurting his pockets. It's hurting his pockets. Like, I'm not going to say that, you know, he doesn't deserve any blame. Like, he he plays his role for sure. But the fact that a lot of people are blaming him for everything is completely irresponsible, in my opinion. But anyways, what do y'all think? Again, let me know. Curious to hear your thoughts. Now, let's get into the Grammys real quick. So the Grammys, it was either a week ago or maybe even two weeks ago at best that the Grammys put out their list of nominations for next year's Grammy ceremony, which is literally a couple months from now. And um, basically, they put out their list for all the categories and all of those include the rap category. So in the past, I've done, you know, breakdowns of who I think should win based on the level of, you know, competitors and talent within each category, but I'm just going to focus on rap because, you know, we're a hip hop show, right? So there's that. (laughs) But nonetheless, uh, I want to focus on the rap category. I want to give you the nominations, who I think will win based on what I normally see from the Grammys and who I think probably should win. All right. So here are the nominees. So you have J. Cole for the off season. You have Nas for King Disease Part 2. You have Tyler, the creator, for Call Me If You Get Lost. You have Drake for uh, Certified Loverboy. And you have Kanye West for Donda. Now, a little tidbit of breaking. Well, I wouldn't say breaking news because this happened a couple days ago. But just as an update to this list, uh, Drake recently pulled out of the best rap category. And there was another category that he was in as well that he pulled out from. Um, he didn't give any specific reason as to why he pulled out from it. A lot of people are speculating that it has to do with the whole Astral World controversy. But then there are people like myself who are speculating that he, he may be doubling down on his statements with regards to the Grammys. Uh, if you guys remember, I think it was either, I think it was two years ago where he made a speech basically saying how you don't need a Grammy to solidify yourself as a great artist. The people will decide that for you. So he made that speech live on on, on the Grammy stage. And so he may be doubling down on that, doubling down on that. Uh, I should say maybe he's showing solidarity for The Weeknd, who was omitted from the Grammys altogether last year when he had quite possibly the hottest album of the year. Um, so there may be that as well. But nonetheless, going back to the list of artists who are nominated for the best rap album of the year category. Once again, I'll say it one more time. You have J. Cole with The Offseason. You have Nas with King Disease 2. Tyler, the creator with Call Me If You Get Lost, and you have Kanye West with Donda. Now, in the past, and consistently throughout, I would say, the Grammys has often nominated mostly the rappers that you know and love and who are pretty popular. Once in a while, in recent years, I would say they may take the one underground rapper and put them into a category of sorts. Um, but with all that said, based on who's nominated, and this is basically whom I predicted would be nominated for this category, if I'm going based on the status quo of the Grammys, 
then as far as I'm concerned, Kanye West will most likely win this award. Do I want him to win that award? No. Now, have I listened to Donda? Truthfully, I have not. Um, so I can't really judge it, judge the album. But I'm only going based off of the name brand recognition. And we and Kanye has been nominated for about 75 Grammys, I believe, uh, throughout his tenure as a as a recording artist. And I think he's won 25 of them, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so on that note, just because of who he is and what his name commands and what have you in his history within the Grammys, he will most likely win that rap album of the year category. Now, as opposed to who I think should win that category, I would like to elect to say, even though this wasn't my favorite album, my favorite rap album of the year, I think J. Cole deserves one. I mean, J. Cole last year won his first ever Grammy when he collaborated with Tyler, the creator for the record, a lot. And that was, and that was, um, uh, 21's uh, 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 song that he featured on was even his. So he won a Grammy by proxy of someone else. So if anything, I feel like a Grammy is well-deserved. Now, I've made my comments about the Grammys before. I think it's all, you know, politics. I think it's all, you know, who you're rubbing elbows and shaking hands with and stuff like that that determines who wins a Grammy and who doesn't win a Grammy. But it would be nice to see J. Cole win a Grammy. It would be nice. I mean, I said the same thing about Nas last year. Nas won his first ever Grammy last year with King's Disease. And to be honest, as much as I love that album, I think he only won that album because of the fact that it was a weak year for music as a whole. And when it came to the rap category, I can't even remember who was even in that category to begin with uh, outside of Nas. And Nas was most likely the most popular name within that category. So going by the status quo of what of what the Grammys likes to do with, with the rap category, just giving the award to the most popular rapper, I think they elected to go with Nas at that time. Not to say that Nas didn't deserve it. But knowing what the po- what the politics of the Grammys is all about, that's probably what they went with based on their logic within their decision making. And I feel like they'll do the same thing here. But as far as who I think should win that album I, or win that category, I think it should be J. Cole. Personally speaking, I think Tyler, the creator, had the best rap album just in terms of well-roundedness. Like You had the rap. You had the melodies. You had the stellar production. You had you know, the... Uh, the additional vocals by additional artists or what have you. You had a well-mixed plate of what you would get in rap music, but as well as what you would get in music as a whole. Whereas King Disease 2, which is an album that I love from Nas, that I believe is better than King's Disease Part 1, I think if you are a rapper's rapper and like you want that rapidly rap record, that's the one you go for. That is the one that, that you go for. I would love to see Nas win... Uh, uh, a Grammy for that so he can go back to back after not having won a Grammy at all that would be absolutely dope just as a fan and then even as a fan or a recent fan I should say of Tyler the Creator just you know giving him a, a, a Grammy to celebrate you know his creativity and what have you that would be dope as well but for somebody like a J. Cole who's never won a Grammy before and for a lot of artists who basically stake their legacies on how many awards they've won because to them it's it's almost like basketball stats in the sense um it would be nice to see him get a grammy for that and it was it was a solid rap album too like it deserves to be in that category it well deserves to be in that category so as far as why I, w- I would like to see win that award out of everyone who is in that category give it a call call world it's long overdue but what do y'all think about that am i right with that analysis 
Do you agree? Do you disagree? Either way, let me know your thoughts. I'm curious to find out. And finally, in Trip Talk, we got to talk about French Montana. So French Montana made some comments recently about rappers and basketball players. And he basically alluded to saying that it's easier to get into the NBA than it is to be a rapper and have a consistent uh, string of success within the rap game. So these are the exact quotes from French Montana. And I quote, you're better off making it in the NBA than hip hop. NBA, they got like what, 28 teams, 15 players on every team, and that's in the hundreds. You talk about hip hop, you can't even name 10 people that's hot every couple months. The odds, anybody can do it if it was that easy. So, <laughs> so I just found that very, uh, I found that very I- ironic coming from French Montana because. He is one of those artists, in my opinion, I know some people are going to roast me for this, but he's one of those artists, in my opinion, in rap, ironically enough, that you can give a microphone and, and, and a pencil pad to anyone and they can be an instant success in rap. I mean, if you really think about it, if you listen to all the records that he's done, all the big name records that he's done, anytime he's on a record with somebody, those artists outshine him nine and a half times out of 10. I'm sorry, but French Montana is not that good of a rapper. He seems like a cool dude, but as a rapper, eh, he leaves little to be desired. I love his production. His beats are amazing, but it makes me mad that those beats are wasted on him. Now, when he has somebody else on the record, okay, I'll give it a listen. But him, he, I think he's one of the rappers that he's talking about, ironically enough. So Ed Lover, a well-known personality within hip-hop, a veteran within this game, um, basically went on the offensive and did an interview with uh, DJ Vlad and told him to, quote, please shut the fuck up. So he continued. He actually did say that, by the way. So he continued on by saying, no way. Do you know how many dudes played high school basketball? Do you know how many dudes played NBA, uh, played college basketball that never got drafted to the NBA? You can have a half-ass song and become a rap star. We've seen it a million times. And then he continued on. I'll tell you something right now, and I'll prove it to you, French Montana. Damian Lillard got better rap skills than you got, homie. Yeah, I said it. If you give me MC to MC, Damian Lillard will bust French Montana's ass. Yeah, I said it. It ain't nothing against you, French. I like your records, but that statement, fuck out of here, son. I see no lies at all whatsoever with what Ed Lover said. He is absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. It is hard to become a professional athlete at the highest level. There are so many players who aspire to get into the NBA and they don't make it. And not because they have a lack of talent, because they can play their asses off, but because the talent level is so high in the NBA that they just don't get that opportunity. Listen, as somebody who has covered basketball and and hip hop, I can definitely say, you know, especially with me covering basketball on like a local scene within Mississauga and stuff like that, uh, and just a little bit in Toronto in general, I can tell you that it is hard, hard to not only carve out a career for yourself in professional sports, but to do it at the highest level in the NBA. There's it, it takes an equal amount of luck and skill 
to get into the NBA. I know so many talented players, players that I've known since my days living in Mississauga, players that I've had, you know, come onto my show and be interviewed and stuff like that, who have played in Greece, who have played in Italy, have played in, in Puerto Rico, in Barcelona, so many different places all over the world, and yet never got their shot in the NBA for one reason or another. And they're just as about as good as anyone that I see in the NBA, and they just couldn't get their opportunity. Hell, you look at somebody like Fred Van Vliet, who didn't even get drafted. And he basically had to audition his way onto the Raptors to the point where even when he did get that final roster spot, it wasn't guaranteed. He still had to sign a two-way contract between the Raptors and Raptors 905, which is their developmental league affiliate, and had to split time in between the main roster and the developmental roster. It wasn't until, I would say, um, maybe 27, no, I want to say 2018, around that time when he had like a two-year deal that was worth about $8 million. But even then, it wasn't a guaranteed deal because he could have gotten cut after the first, first, uh, first year of that deal. It was a team contract, not a, not a player contract. It wasn't until they won the NBA championship in 2019, the Toronto Raptors, where he was offered uh, a max level extension, which guaranteed all of those years. So it's a four-year deal worth $84 million, No, worth, um, actually, yeah, yeah, worth $84 million, and all those years are guaranteed. So he had to go through all of that just so he can get that guaranteed deal. And he was undrafted. Imagine what the next person would have, would, would have to do. So, yeah, French is totally off on this analysis. And I would say with regards to what Ed Lover said about Damian Lillard busting his ass, 110% agreed. Damian Lillard, to me, in my opinion, is the best basketball player rapper I've ever heard in my life. He's better than Shaq. And I give it to Shaq because Shaq has that, that stage presence. And he, for what it's worth, he has some good lyrics as well. Um, way better than Ron Artest, better than Lou Will, better than Lance Stevenson. Um, and yes, better than Allen Iverson. I know a lot of people don't want to hear that, but yeah, he was better than Allen Iverson. Allen Iverson brought like the thug image and everything like that to, and the overall hip hop image to basketball. But as far as the bars go, not that he wasn't, not that he was bad, but it's nothing that I haven't heard already before. I've just heard it better from other rappers. Whereas Damian Lillard actually has a very unique story to tell. Stage presence could be a bit better in my personal opinion, but as far as like what, what he's talking about and how he's rapping, and even his freestyles I've heard on on um, Shade Forty Five with um, with uh, oh my god uh, uh, Sway, dude is legit talented. I have three of his albums. Like he can actually rap his ass off, and he tells a story. So yeah, um, what's his name? French Montana. He was definitely bugging on that. It is not easy to get into the NBA. If it was easy to get into the NBA everybody would be doing it. I think he's got it twisted the other way around because it seems like everybody wants to be a rapper. Look at, look at what's his name. Takashi 69. He wasn't even a rapper when he got into the game. Like he knew nothing about rap. It was the fact that the people that were surrounding him created an image around his personality and they just amplified it to, to the 10th degree. They had a few people writing for him. He, he wrote the lyrics and then boom, you look at easy E easy E was never a rapper. He was a gangster. He was peddling drugs and stuff like that. It wasn't until he got in the studio with Dr. Dre and ice cube who taught him how to rap and taught him how to spit bars because he had the image of what they were looking for. And all they needed was a voice for it. 
So really, and it, like Soldier Boy. I mean, come on. Like the list goes on. Like there's so many people, especially in this generation. And this is not me trying to sound like an old head or anything like that. But there are so many guys who, and, and girls as well, who come into this rap game thinking that all they need is an image and some sex appeal or whatever the case may be. And they can become a rapper. But these people don't have longevity. They're here today, gone tomorrow. So if you're asking me, it's easier to get into the rap game. And if he's asking about sustained success in the rap game, then okay. It's not easy to have sustained success in the rap game if you're somebody who follows trends. But to say that it's a lot easier to get into, uh, it's a lot easier to get into the NBA than it is to rap. Are you, are you dumb? I'm sorry, but like, when when is the last time we have seen a rapper have a sustained career in professional basketball? The closest I've seen is Master P when he played a few exhibition games for the Toronto Raptors. That's about it. Hell, even J. Cole tried his, tried, tried his hand at playing in the uh, National Basketball League of Africa, and he only played about three games. And that was him at age 35. And that wasn't even the NBA. That was an NBA affiliate. So it wasn't even at the highest level. So what are we really talking about, ladies and gentlemen? I should have made him the wanks of the week for this, but someone beat him to the punch. But speaking of which, if you agree with me, if you disagree, then let me know. Because right now, we're about to get into the final segment of the day. And you already know what that means. So with that perfect segue, let's cue it in. Who has entered the shallow walls of the Hall of Shame this week? Who has been crowned the captain of Coonery this week? Ladies and gentlemen, it is time for Wankster of the Week. And this week's Wankster of the Week goes to disgraced singer and performer Jussie Smollett, a.k.a. Jussie Smollier. <laughs> oh, shout out to Dave Chappelle for that. That was freaking hilarious, by the way. But nonetheless, Jussie Smollett is getting the Wankster of the Week because he was found guilty for staging a hate crime. So I don't know if you guys remember, but it was a few years ago, back in 2019, where Jussie Smollett, the singer and actor who's best known for playing a character on the Fox series, what was it, uh, what was the name of that show, not Power, um, Empire, there we go, Empire, was known for playing a character on the series Empire, uh, was trying to stage a hate crime taking place in Chicago, where he alleged that two white men who were wearing MAGA hats basically tied a noose around his neck, beat him up a few times here and there, and poured bleach on him, and basically trying to turn him white, I guess. So we all heard the story, and, you know, our initial reaction, for the most part, was, man, like, that's, that's, that's rough, right? Because we know the history of hate crimes, especially within America. But then as the story gained more traction and what have you, a lot of people started questioning it, saying, wait a minute, why would two white guys be in the middle of Southside Chicago at 2 a.m. in the morning outside a Subway restaurant looking for Jussie Smollett, of all people? Like, he's not even that level of popularity to uh, be the target of a hate crime. So a lot of people started you know, asking questions, and then more and more details started coming out, and then it became apparent and it was revealed that he in fact staged it in fact the two people that he collaborated with on this whole you know hoax if you will were two bodyguards who were seen as extras on an episode of empire these two nigerian guys who are like 
massively muscular and stuff like that. And they were in disguise incognito uh, as these people. And they came out and said that, yes, uh, it was, in fact, staged. Um, so I think they did that just so they can get, like, what, no charges pressed on them or lesser charges, if anything. But nonetheless, they spilled the beans on it, and it became a media circus. And before it was revealed that he was... Um, in fact, staging this whole entire thing, he was going on a whole press run and saying how, you know, it was a devastating moment that happened to him and how, you know, he fought for his life. And then even he went on stage one time and proclaimed himself as the quote unquote gay Tupac and proceeded to say that he beat both of their asses. Hmm. Oh boy, this is this is insane. This is insane. So let's let's read a statement that was provided by uh, that was posted on Hot 97's website. So Smollett testified that he was the victim of a real hate crime, telling jurors, "quote There was no hoax." He called the brothers "quote liars" and said that. 3500 a week check he wrote for them was for a meal and workout plans. His attorneys argued that the brothers attacked the actor. They are homophobic and didn't like, quote unquote, who he was. They also alleged the brothers made up the story about the attack being staged to get money from Smollett and that they said they wouldn't testify against him if Smollett paid them each $1 million. So even though all that was said, the jury still found him guilty just because there was insurmountable evidence that that proved otherwise and you know there are some dumbasses out there even after the fact that it was proven that he was that that he was lying about the whole thing dumbasses like like tiffany uh what's her name um uh amanda seals pardon me amanda seals who is only relevant for her role on insecure and her her um her panel role on on the real which i don't think she's even a panelist anymore um she was even saying even after the fact that he was found out to be lying about in the first place that, you know, it was okay for him to lie about because now there's more exposure about things like this happening, which is the most irresponsible thing you can say because this is just a prime example of the boy who cried wolf, meaning that if somebody else were to crowd an actual hate crime that actually did in fact happen, no one would believe that person based on the fiasco that was caused by Jesse Smollett, all because he wanted his 15 seconds of fame to last for a few more minutes. So this guy's been found guilty by a jury of his peers, and now we are now awaiting for the sentencing of said uh, guilty verdict. So I don't know what sentence he's going to get. Because he's just a celebrity, he's probably going to get a lighter sentence. I don't see him spending time in jail for more than a year, in my personal opinion. And even if he does spend time in jail for a year, he'll probably get out in half the time for good behavior. And because he's got the lawyers to you know provide for a lighter sentence and it won't be a maximum security or anything like that it'll be like minimum security he'll have it'll probably be like a house arrest in his penthouse or some shit like that but either way he's a wankster for trying to appropriate a hate crime because blacks in america have been the victim of hate crimes for centuries um especially if we're talking about you know uh people who are also identify as gay or people who identify as trans have gone through that so many times and so for him to use that as a way to I guess strengthen his celebrity profile is deplorable to say the least. So because of that and because of that alone, Justice Smollett is the wankster of the week.
And on that note, we have to bring today's episode to a close, ladies and gents. I want to thank y'all for tuning in. It was a bit of a lengthy one, but it was a necessary one nonetheless. Uh, Once again, if you want to contact me on all my socials, hit me up on uh, my handle at CoolRadioCC, where you'll find a lot of that stuff there. Uh, For all podcasts, you can find me on SoundCloud, you can find me on Spotify, and you can find me on Google Play Music. And yeah, thank y'all for tuning in. Once again, happy holidays to all. Um, I don't know if this will be the last pod of the year, but if not, keep in tune with my socials, and I will give you all details if we will be having another uh, part to wrap up the year but otherwise again thank y'all for tuning in love y'all as always and as you already know cool radio is a division of cool click media and entertainment reminding you each and every day that we are out here creating our own legacies keep it gravy and wavy we are out of here peace